0: Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast, where we talk to all of the most important newsmakers, thought leaders, opinion writers, and pretty much everyone. So today I am so pleased to have with us Robert Pondicio. He is a senior fellow at American Enterprise Institute. He also writes at commentary.org. You can find the link to his article in the show notes of today's podcast. Thank you so much, Robert, for joining us from vacation no less. (laughs)
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate your interest.
0: Well, um, we love school choice. We love talking about it. And we especially love talking to people who write about it. And your article has an amazing title. It's called The Unbearable Bleakness of American Schooling, How Contemporary Education Fetishizes the Bad and the Broken in American Life. Why did you decide to write this?
1: Yeah, a little dark, isn't it? Sorry sorry about that. (laughs) Um, commentary magazine—they have a, a, a terrific podcast that I would recommend to anybody. And they—they always uh, make a little bit of gentle fun of themselves, saying that they traffic in crushing morosity. Uh, so I, I suppose that, that that my piece is in keeping with that uh, that, that crushing morosity tradition at, at Commentary. Um, but I, more earnestly, I've, I've been involved in education for for, for twenty years. I was a, a fifth grade teacher in the South Bronx for, for for several years of. Um, you know, stayed in education ever since, and now um, you know, work writing about classroom practice and, and and education policy and whatnot. And and it's difficult. Um, or let me let me step back. Every, every now and then, I think it's helpful to 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 take a step back to kind of look at what's going on at say the thirty five thousand foot level. And and it's when, when when you do that, it's it's hard not to wonder about the messages that we're sending children. Um, in in curriculum in school culture, I mean, I detail this at some length in the article, but uh, and this is not new, by the way. Um, you know, as as far back as twenty or thirty years ago, young adult literature, um, you know, took a very very dark and dystopian um, turn. You know, the best selling children's books of the last generation have been the Hunger Games. Uh, which everybody kind of takes for granted, but well, hold on a second. You know what that's about, right? It's about children killing each other, you know, for entertainment, for a you know a dystopian post-America, um, so to speak. So, and, and in a way, that's almost <clears throat> one of the, the the lighter versions of of young adult literature. It's kind of you know it fetishizes the, the pathological and whatnot. Uh, There's been been a lot of criticism, Um, not always nuanced criticism, but it's out there about, say, critical race theory and placing uh, race at the the, the center uh, of the American educational experience and giving kids the idea that the country is either populated by oppressors and the oppressed. For example, I I do civic education. Uh, I joke that's my side hustle. Uh, That that traffics heavily in in a vision of, of America as kind of bad and broken. On and on and on. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, and, and then of course, you know, you, you have the threat of climate change, you know, which we drum into kids' heads all the time. Uh, I, I'm not saying that any of these things are independently bad, but, but you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, you know, uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s when by comparison to today, it was actually quite dark. You know, we had the Vietnam War, we had the Cold War and threat of nuclear annihilation. Uh, you know, in 1972, I believe, people don't remember this. There were 1,900 domestic bombings in one year alone. I mean, imaginable, you know, unimaginable levels of, of political violence by contemporary standards. But the point i make in the piece is, look, you know, I kind of yes, yeah, I grew up at a time when there was, you know, uh, very divided, divisive, and and even violent uh, America and world. But but I think kids of my generation never had a sense that things had left the rails and that you know that that things were uh, had gone were going badly. So I mean, one of the questions I don't have an answer for this, but one of the questions I'd like to raise in this piece are you know, are, are we as adults kind of losing the plot here and forgetting to to reassure children um, you know, to, to the degree to which you know uh, uh, adults of the previous generation did.
0: So you know, I I I love the fact that you went back to previous decades, you know, where there was political violence. But I just remember growing up in the you know, in late '70s and '80s. I knew there were political problems and I knew growing up in Germany that we were in a cold war and that there were terrorist right. acts against American targets overseas. And I remember my dad saying, you can't go here. You can't go there. Or, you know, if you go downtown, you can only go th- you know, this far or on this road that we've already been on. Um, sure. but for But everything else was, you know, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. R. Tolkien, or I remember reading Alice in Wonderland and being fixated for about three weeks on the possibility of being near a tree trunk and falling into a hole that an animal had dug and never being able to get back to real life. That was pretty stressful. But you know, like nothing like the Hunger Games to me and and of course, the Hunger Games is recent and our kids were, um, you know, in either early teens or one of them was a late tween when that came out. And I remember we watched it and we kind of laughed at it. We, we saw it as being sure. a comical misrepresentation of what happens when people, you know, you would have the elites using the children of the poor to entertain them and the way that they there were so many of the poor and there were so few of the elites and how they didn't seem to want to fight back. It wasn't until I think that the third movie of that where they finally start fighting back and it's because of the one of the children who was originally forced into this game. And so we we looked at it more from, you know, we we disliked um the love interest in the first movie. We disliked his personality. We were shocked that so many people found him handsome and things like that. Like we were we when I guess when we view movies, we're looking at the di- things differently than what mainstream culture but what people usually look at. And so it, it's it's weird to me. But then after The Hunger Games, it seemed like we were on a dystopian kick.
1: Yeah, I could argue that round or flat. The fact that you kind of viewed it as just another movie is actually sort of a problem. In other words, there's something genuinely bizarre about, you know, we're, we're making entertainment for children that involves children killing each other. I mean, if you would, I, I, I could be wrong about this, but I think if you would suggest it to that, uh, that, that to as entertainment 50 years ago or so, people would say, are you out of your mind? I oh,
0: they would have, That's they incredible. would have, but I, but we did eventually get to that. Like the first movie we, you know, I, I said, wow, I, this is this, I, I didn't say, Oh, it's geared towards teens. We watched it as a family We had our commentary and then that was it. The second one came out and I was like, they're continuing on with this. And then there was Ender's Game where the kids are actually fighting a war, but they think they're playing a video game. And in that one, I said, I said to my kids, I was like, why are all of you guys' movies about kids doing things that adults should be doing, Um, you know, fighting to restore a society back to order or, you know, ending a war with an alien,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a really interesting parallel to the point that I make in the piece and in my work about uh, civic education. You know, there is, and I'm sure you've discussed this in your podcast in the past, but, you know, one one of the big so-called innovations in education is what we call action civics, which involves children, uh, you know, what you and I might have done student government as as kids. Now we try to get kids to be active and, yes, activists. Uh, ostensibly on issues that are of concern to them, and then they, you know, they they, they learn where the levers are, where to pull them, so to speak. Um, but I, I'm not sure this actually works. Um, and I and I taught this kind of civics for a while at a charter school called Democracy Prep in New York City. Uh, what, what you end up with, I think, and again, none of this is ill-intended necessarily, but it just kind of contributes to the kind of the, the, the slow, you know, drip, drip, drip of of, of darkness in education. You know, we're, we're suggesting to kids. Everything is bad and broken. And by the way, the adults, um, we, we, we're, we're out of ideas. It's up to you kids to, to fix this. Um, and and on, on, on the one hand, that's supposed to be empowering for children. You know, we're, we're, uh, we, we talk a lot in education about ensuring that children have agency and they feel like they're effective actors in their own lives. So that's, it, it could be well intended. Uh, but my point, again, is when you start to add all these different impulses up, it ends up adding up to a very bleak view of the world. Um, one of the things that concerns me about this, there's there's a, a kind of good body of psychological literature uh, at, at work here that suggests that what 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 one psychologist or one expert calls your primal beliefs kind of affect your mental health. In other words, if you view the world as as a good place, an interesting place, an intriguing or exciting place, it, it tends to have a positive effect on your mental health. If you view it as a bad place, if you if you view people as bad mostly instead of good. Uh, well, that can affect that, that worldview, that negative worldview can affect your, your your mental health. So I don't think this is just merely a curiosity. I think there could be a real price tag uh, associated with, with continuing to reinforce the idea among children that, hey, the world is bad and we're counting on you to fix it.
0: But there is something more. And that is this is a, this is an outgrowth of Marxist thought because Marxism is a complete... Tear down of the society. It breaks apart every part of society and it looks at the worst parts. It doesn't acknowledge anything good. In America, we have the longest standing constitution and the longest running form of continuous government without coups or, you know, um, like, you know, radical violent changes because the founders mm-hmm. left us a system in which corrupt leaders could be removed or um, societal change is possible through the changing of the Constitution or the Bill of Rights or... Uh, new legislation, new law. You can enact new legislation. You can bring in new people to govern in the place of people who are corrupt. And uh, our system used to teach that our educational system used to teach that. But since we've seen the rise of the dystopian movies, it's cultural, it's downstream from everything else. And it, it really is an outgrowth of that Marxist thought that has been, they've been, you know, kind of slowly and methodically embedding that into education so kids have to be activists because they don't believe they can change government or change their lives in any other way.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I'm out of my depth. I'm not a political theorist, so I have no reason to gainsay what you're saying. But what I have observed as somebody who follows education for a living is that we have kind of drifted you know, public education at large. You can make a good case. I've tried to make a good case has really drifted from its primary purpose. Like, you know, if you go back a couple of centuries, our earliest thinkers about uh, education uh, you know, people we dimly remember now, like Noah Webster and Benjamin Rush and whatnot, they, they were very, very concerned about the fragility of the republic. And they they viewed, you know, the, that education was necessary to create a citizenry capable of self-government. So arguably, uh, you know, civics, preparation for citizenship was the reason we have these things called public schools. Now, uh, you know, to, to reinforce your point, Stacey, you could make a case that whether it's wittingly or not, uh, public education is kind of drifting into an oppositional relationship with, with, uh, the, the, with its hosts, so to speak, with, with citizens, with taxpayers, with moms and dads. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure how we got I – mean, okay, I can I – if we had several hours, I could trace for you how we got to this point. <laughs> right. um, but, but, you know, public education has really kind of it, – it, it, it's, it's putting itself in a, in a different role – um, you know, and I don't want to be naive here. Um, you know, yes, we want to have well-educated citizens who are capable of seeing this country. Uh, you know, uh, positively, negatively, our successes, our failures. Nobody, certainly not me, is suggesting we should have, you know, kind of a you know tub thumping. Um, uh, nationalist education system. We should be mature enough as citizens and and have faith enough in our children to be able to you know to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly, so to speak, um, because that's how you build that more perfect nation. You know that wonderful phrase from from the preamble of the Constitution. But but again, the point I'm making this piece is that we are dwelling almost entirely in the negative, in the bad and the broken. And at some point, I think it's worth asking: Does that send a message to kids? Wait a minute, rather than try to build that more perfect union, why bother? it's 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 just broken. Now you could you could make a or you could connect the dots to to political thought here because I think our friends on the left tend to have a view of of this country as in at best in dire need of reform, and at worst, uh, let's just dismantle institutions and tear them all down and start over again. So I mean there there is an undeniable political overlay to that. Um, but it's it, it, it's not as if we have 3.7 3. million teachers who are you know closet revolutionaries. My point is we've just kind of drifted into this oppositional relationship. And every now and then we need to kind of stir ourselves and say, hey, hold on a second. Is this serving uh, our nation and our children well?
0: Yeah, and I would say in response to that question that it's not. And the thing that that kind of sticks out to me is I, I recently um, interviewed someone for, and he, he, he was talking, to, it's an article that, um was written about um Kirsten cinema and it turns out that her childhood she was poverty stricken in childhood and that was what drove her to become A politician. And in her mind, she is an activist. Her activism is serving in government, representing people who she feels don't have a voice, who remind her of her own circumstances growing up poor, but brilliant, graduating from high school at 16, things like that. So the point I'm trying to make is we will have people who will rise up and become activists to right the wrongs in our society without actually training them to be activists as children we we actually have the that that happens naturally because people at a very young age sense unfairness or injustice and they make it up in their mind that they're going to do something about it and then they take off on that as a lifelong pursuit in their career field and often do amazing things i think kirsten cinema is a great example of that because i'm politically opposed to her party but i agree with her a great deal on the things that she wants to see happen for people in her state of arizona so yeah. I, when you say we've drifted away, and that it might not be intentional, I feel like there is some intentionality to it from some people. But for the teaching body, the body of people who teach our kids in public schools, I do think they're kind of swept up in a moment where they feel like this is what's best, but it really is terrible for kids' educational outcomes.
1: No, I, I strongly agree there. And and again, I'm just not. I'm trying to make sure I don't sound conspiratorial here because I don't know that. There's yeah, a, a grand design here. What, what, what I would say is that, and I, you know, I, I say this as somebody who was a, uh, a former and still occasional uh, classroom teacher, somebody who's been to Ed School, somebody who writes and covers this this stuff. I, I think I, I can't prove this, Stacy, but I think I'm right about this based on you know just 20 years of observing. I, I think the average American public school teacher simply does not conceive of himself or herself as a government employee, as a public servant. You know, there's almost nothing in the culture of teaching that encourages us as teachers to conceive of our, ourselves as government employees or public servants, but but that's literally what we are. I mean, we are performing a government service, arguably one of the most important government services um, you know, that 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 we have that that, that our government provides in, in this country. So it's it's kind of bizarre, right, that we could drift into this kind of you know oppositional critical relationship. Um, and view ourselves as as something other than serving the public interest, uh, and and you know being whether it's activists or child advocates or whatnot. You know, obviously, you want teachers who who love and care about children. I mean, nobody would want to send their kids uh, to to school um, with a, with a teacher who was who was not you know interested and fully committed to children's well being. Um, but the, the the field has again drifted into this kind of oppositional activist relationship with 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 its host, which is. Uh, it's just a little bit strange. And again, it has drifted very, very far from shore in terms of uh, the the, the origins of public education in this country.
0: So I'm back on your piece over at commentary.org and I'm so glad that we can have this conversation because, because you're not coming from the political perspective, the way that you're discussing this is actually much more along the lines of some conversations that I've engaged in with people who aren't really political but care a great deal about education. So, there is that group of people out there who aren't involved in politics, but are deeply involved in in you know, education in some form. And we need to have that kind of thought process included as well. And in your article here, you say, the evidence of an accelerating mental health crisis is troubling enough, but a bracing essay published at Yu- by Yuval Levin at the Dispatch late last year hints at the emergence of a quiet crisis of despair that is changing the nature of social breakdown in America, what what can we take from this cuz I, I, it's kind of a dire warning
1: yeah and and you know credit to Yuval Levin, who i know he's a colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute and he's a you know an intellectual hero of mine it was that piece that he wrote in the dispatch late last year i think it came out around thanksgiving that that really set my piece in motion I mean, he's making a, a, a subtle but but deeply important point you know and and i'm i'm, I'm not Yuval Levin, so i'll i'll paraphrase it badly but his, his basic point is that, look, we're used to thinking of kind of um, disorder as, as chaos and, and an excess of passions. In other words, we, you know, people who derail their lives um, because of an, an, an excess deal for um, you know, sex, money, um, drugs, whatever. In other words, they, 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 they're not, they, they lost control of their passions. His point, and I think there's good data to back this up, is that the new face of disorder is what he called disordered passivity, almost a failure to launch, so to speak. Uh, I mean, it's a cliche to talk about the, you know, the 28-year-old who's still, you know, sleeping on the couch in the basement, but that's the, that's the phenomenon. It's kids who are not, they don't have an excess of passion. They have no passion whatsoever. Um, you know, they, they've gotten the message, um, you know, this is how I interpret it, that there's nothing here for them. There's nothing worth getting out of bed in the morning for. So, I mean, you can look at this and say, well, look, you know, uh, teenage pregnancy is down, teenage drug use is down, teenage, you know, all, all these kind of pathologies um, are down and that's a good thing. Uh, Yuval takes it one step further and says, "No, wait a minute. It, 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 those those things are down. You know, the, the divorce rate is down, for example, because the marriage rate is down. So, you know, there, there's a failure to engage in with with life. That's his point about disordered passivity. And, and and my connection from that to what we're doing in school is, well, hold on a second. Is it possible? And I don't want to overstate the influence of schools as compared to say, you know, families and faith and whatnot." um but one would imagine one would hope that as a as a you know operating in the public interest that schools would look at this trend and say hey wait a minute we have a, a solemn obligation to make sure that children leave us at age 17 or 18 excited to do something go to college join the military get a job um but engage in life and and if the data is telling us that we have a crisis of of kids not engaging well then then that's uh, again i don't want to say it's the exclusive fault of of schools but we need to act, and we need to look at that data and and ask: Are we contributing to it?
0: So you know, I will say, I I previously held the same view as you. I would say, you know, you can't blame it all on schools, but kids spend sixteen thousand hours in yeah. school. And oh, let me be they, clear: I'm
1: not saying schools are blameless. Let me.
0: No, let no, I no, I wouldn't. I that. I didn't get that from what you said, but I think. There is an outsized influence, and parents underestimate it because we look at, oh, we have all summer, oh, we have you know every evening, but the time during the day when people are awake, alert, most apt to learn, captive because you know there's no there's no phones, there's no television. It's just the teacher and the students, or or you know maybe it's lab and the students. Um, it is a, it is a really fertile time for learning and inculcating a worldview and an ideo- ideological bent, and also kind of a, an outlook. Because what you're talking about when you say we, we, we need to get these kids ready when they leave at 17 or 18, they need to be excited about going out into the world. Well, that's their outlook. And so an outlook is molded at home. And you start in that zero to age three timeframe. That's the most important timeframe. But then it stretches out over those years to 17. And in between that time, negative experiences or a heavy bent towards this dystopian worldview can take away the excitement about going out. It's like, why, what do I have to be excited about? The climate's going to end us. You know, the the government's horrible. The Republicans are all racist. And my parents have never been able to enact the change that they've wanted to see. So why should I go out there and, you know, kind of join the military or, or go get an education? What what can I change? That is kind of what You're we're seeing. In Thirty a little bit.
1: seconds. What it took me four thousand words to say. I wish we'd be spoken before I wrote the article, but that's <laughs> that's a perfect summary of what I was describing. And look at the at the biggest level of abstraction, it might simply be not a change in children's lives, but a change in adult culture. I mean, the the point I make in the piece is, despite the fact that I grew up in a very tumultuous time, I, you know, my parents made no attempt that I'm aware of to shield me from you know the the, the dangers of the world. But I think most of us at that time had a sense that, okay, well, look, you know, the adults are in charge. They're basically decent and competent. You know, my country's the good guy, so to speak. So, you know, we're going to be okay. You you were not tyrannized um, by by the the, the facts of the world, so to speak. Now you could make the case that, look, not not nothing. we don't have any problems, but by comparison to generations past, things are going fairly well. But adults have lost interest in playing that reassuring role. If anything, they are, we we seem interested in telling kids, "Oh, things are really bad. Things have never been worse." So it's it's in in a way, it's the way that we are the the, the the signals that we are sending as adults to our children, whether it's in school or outside of school. That's the thing that feels different to me and not good, not positive for children.
0: Yeah, and that and and so it's really a matter of us saying. Because um, I found a lot of success when I was uh, – when our when our children were younger especially, I found a lot of success in talking to their teachers and kind of saying, you know, this is something that our son is struggling with. And, and they they would always say, oh, thanks for letting me know because that helps me to understand, you know, some of his behaviors in the classroom and I can support you in that way. And, you know, I, sometimes I would even say we aren't saying this to him or we aren't doing this with him. And she'd say, oh, OK, sure. Or, have you thought about this? Because, you know, teachers deal with exponentially more children than a parent with three kids does. So have you have you tried this? And I would say, oh, yeah, we'll try that at home. And so we had that partnership. And I think sometimes we just assume we're in a fancy neighborhood with five hundred thousand dollar homes. And we are you know, sending them to a triple A rated school district. I don't need to have any input here. These people know what they're doing. Well, the reality is we do need to partner with teachers and make sure that they understand, you know, we're we we we're living in a Hunger Games society and our kids think it's a Hunger Games society. But in reality, it's just 2022 America. We have our problems. We have our politics. But all in all, things are actually pretty darn good for a huge segment of our population. And so can we kind of tone down the activism? I think if parents said that to teachers, they might respond a little bit more. Now, the activist teachers, maybe not. But the big body of teachers that most of us are dealing with would probably respond to that, and we would feel more satisfied if if we just maybe would just say it
1: yeah i th- I think that's right. look you know again, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, um, but I know enough to suggest that um, optimism is is key to mental health and and if we if we are not raising our children to be resilient and optimistic and to Again, have that primal world belief that the world is basically good. People are basically good. You know, I I don't want to overstate the case, but it feels to me like, you know, from a mental health perspective, playing with fire a little bit. Um, You know, I said it before. I think schools, about the the most important thing that they can do is to cultivate a certain amount of investment in children. You know, a lot of us in the so-called ed reform movement are probably guilty of overselling college in the last generation or so. It doesn't have to just be about everybody must go to college, but everybody must have something. You know some some um, life path that has been opened up to them in their K through 12 education that they're just really excited to get started and and and, and engage with. You know and pe- people who are optimistic engage. People who are pessimistic stay on the couch. Um, so you know again I don't want to overstate uh, the the thesis here. Uh, but I do think it's worth asking, uh, you know, uh, or taking a, a long, hard look at the signals we're sending to our children and, and asking ourselves, what is, you know, how are we translating the world to them? Are, are we contributing to this problem of disengagement? Uh, and, and, and especially in schools, um, shouldn't there be a more, shouldn't we expect a more positive, um, uh, you know, again, not Pollyannish, um, you know, not like everything's going to be, you know, uh, uh, sunshine and roses. Um, but, but, you know, clearly we used to be better at this. Uh, For all our problems, we used to be better at engaging children, and, and we just seem to have lost touch with that impulse.
0: We possibly have, but the good news with kids is, this is the thing that I I tell young parents all the time, now that our kids are college age, when I encounter a parent who's dealing with, you know, she's spoiled, or I can't seem to get her to listen, and I always tell them, oh, this will pass. The next thing you'll be dealing with, you'll have forgotten that she ever went through this phase. Try to enjoy it. And, you know, they always kind of raise their eyebrows, like, (laughs) enjoy her behaving this way. I'm like, seriously, try to enjoy it. (laughs) Try to find something fun about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there, there there's a great country song by Trace Atkins called You're Gonna Miss This. And whenever I encounter parents uh, you know who are complaining about, you know, whatever's going wrong with their kids' lives, like, trust me, you know 'cause I, you know, I my, I have a, an adult child now as well. It's like you, you will miss these days, as dry mm-hmm. as they may seem. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you you will miss this. I agree with you, you.
0: They will. They will. And the other part is, it is such a sweet memory when you think back to you thought this was like the most, this this is the biggest problem you're dealing with, right? Your child is doing exactly. something, you can't seem to figure it out. The child is not a fully verbal, you know, individual. So you're just <laughs> banging heads with this little person. And you you feel like every night you're going to bed after fighting a bear all day long. Your body is tired and bruised. You're mentally incapacitated. I would cry myself to sleep. My husband would say, what's oh, wrong? Goodness. I'm like, I just need to go to sleep, but I just can't take it anymore. And he, I know he thought, what's happening to her? Is she having a nervous breakdown? Then in the morning, I would be bright and sunny again because I just needed to cry and sleep. But um, the, you do look back on that and laugh.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's true. I mean, you know, the darkest day every parent has is that, that first time you're – 13-year-old child, you know, slams the door and yells, I hate you. And then, you know, you look back at the 10 years later and what a trifle that seems compared to some other problems. But uh, <laughs> yeah. no, nobody, nobody's path is straight. We all have our bumps in the road.
0: We do. But I, I love the, the answer that you're providing is that we remember that we need a positive outlook. And that is not just something that's limited to parenting. We have, you know, um, lots of economists. If you talk to them, no matter what the market is doing, if you say, what is your outlook? Well, they'll say, Whatever analysis they have about the market, but then at the end, they always say without fail, but I have a positive outlook. And I've asked some of them, you know, in interviews, why, why, why do you have a positive outlook? And the answer universally is, why would I invest or continue on along a path that I felt had a negative outlook? This road will have ups and downs and there will be opportunities for growth and there will be contractions. But in the end, I'm continuing on because I believe in the free market system, in capitalism, in investing, in the industry or market that they're participating in. Whatever the driver for their activity, they have a positive outlook about it. And we have to have the same outlook as well. Otherwise, if we don't have a positive outlook on life, then we're basically saying we don't want to go on living. So we're not all suicidal. So obviously we have to have a positive outlook on life.
1: No, look, that's a really good parallel. And it's funny, I used to work in business media, didn't even connect those dots. But if, if we were as bleak, um, you know, uh, as, 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 all, as we sound sometimes, the, the, the only thing we'd be investing in would be, you know, bottled water, canned goods and ammunition, right? So your, 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 your point's a good one. Um, you know, you have to look at not just the things that we say, uh, but the things that we do. Um, you know, uh, but, but I mean, you know, children, we have to remember are not, you know, just, they, they lack our perspective. You know, they, they look to us to be brave on their behalf, to be optimistic on their behalf, um, and to whether it's, you know, overtly or just through our actions and words, uh, signal to them um, that, that you know, that, that gratitude and optimism are are important. And, you know, yes, uh, things can always be better, but, but we, we know from history they can sure be worse.
0: Yep, they could be worse. And they probably will be worse. And then they'll be better again, because um, it's not just cyclical, it's unpredictable. uh, But it's this thing we call life. And I I agree with you 100% about the positive outlook. I'm, you know, whatever the driver behind it is, if you don't have a positive outlook, then you really are so difficult to be around for everyone else. And kids don't have the option of simply saying, well, you know, this person's difficult. I'm just going to cut them out of my life, which is what as adults, we often will do that. Someone who's too difficult for us to handle will just slowly extract ourselves from their existence. But kids can't do that. They're stuck with you.
1: <laughs> See, I'm out of my depth on this because I'm not a child psychologist, but in a way I can, you're making me think about this. We're probably better at dealing with this at an interpersonal level than at the higher level of distraction. In other words, um, you know, the, the, the expectations that we have for children in terms of, you know, their personality, their character, getting along with others. You know, we're, we're pretty good at that, at being at giving them guidance on that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the larger stuff, you know, the, 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 the larger worldview, the, whether, whether you want to call it politics or something else. Um, but this idea of the world is good or bad, people are good or bad. It's very, very easy to have and encourage warm relationships with the people who are right in front of you. Uh, but those larger kind of, you know, again, primal beliefs about the world Um, may have a larger effect on children's overall mental health. So it's it's, it's worth applying the lessons um, that you're describing um, to to children's personal relationships to the world at large.
0: I agree. Well, you know, we have to let you get back to your vacation. We could go on, but the article is amazing. I I recommend anyone listening, please take a look at the article. You'll pick up so much from it. It's linked in the show notes for today's podcast. And we have been so... Graciously blessed with your time today, Robert Pondicio, Senior Fellow at American Enterprise Institute. Thank you for your time today, sir.
1: Enjoyed it. Thanks so much.
0: All right. Have a wonderful vacation. And you can find out more at stacyontheright.com and familyvisionmedia.org. We'll see you next time.